And a very happy Sunday to you. Welcome to the Rick Edelman Show here on KFI AM 640. Hope you're enjoying the summer season. We had some volatility on Wall Street this week. I'm sure you noticed it. Uh, Monday, the stock market had its biggest drop in, I think, over a year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 767 points. Now, we know why it did it. Very often, people are clueless or or just struggling to understand why does the market do what it's doing. Well, this one, I think, was pretty obvious to everybody. Last week, uh, the prior Friday, the president announced new tariffs against China that were going to cost China billions, hundreds of billions of dollars. And then the Chinese retaliated uh, by lowering the value of their currency relative to the dollar. And that led, in fact, the U.S. Treasury Department to label the Chinese as currency manipulators. So there's this back and forth Rock'em, sock'em robots going on. I hit you, you hit me. And the stock market's not happy. The stock market fell almost 800 points on Monday. Why? Because Wall Street is worried that if the trade wars between the U.S. and China don't get resolved soon, it will begin to hurt the profits of America's companies. And if you hurt the profits of the companies, then the value of the stock has to go down. And they voted with their feet on Monday demonstrating this by causing the stock market to drop almost 800 points. But apparently, that attitude didn't last very long because the very next day, the stock market rose 300 points. (laughs) Well, I mean, if things were so bad on Monday that the market fell 700, almost 800 points, did something happen overnight that they changed their mind? Well, obviously, because the market was up 300. You know, you just have to wonder what's going on. And then we saw continued volatility through the rest of the week. So, what does all this mean for you? Here's the answer. It doesn't mean anything. This is nonsense. This is just political jockeying between two economic superpowers. Both are trying very hard to generate benefits for their own respective nations. They're both, frankly, acting as everybody, respectively, would want them to act. I think here in America, we have to acknowledge that we have a massive trade deficit. In other words, we buy more goods and services around the world than we sell. And that means more money is going out of the U.S. than is coming in with our trading partners. And President Trump has made it clear, he said this during his campaign in 2016, he's been saying it ever since, he doesn't like it and he's going to do something about it, and well, now here he is. And those trading partners are retaliating because they're not happy about the tariffs they're being forced to pay to the U.S. And so it goes. Here's what it comes down to. These trade wars occur from time to time. When they occur, there's turmoil in the markets as the markets are trying to figure out what does it all mean, what's the impact going to be, how long will it last, What's the implication on corporate profits and so on and so forth? And in the end, the trade wars get resolved. Now, does that mean I can promise you with absolute certainty that this current trade war is going to get resolved? Well, I'm not allowed to promise anything about anything. So, no, I can't say it's going to get resolved. But how could it not be? I mean, one way or the other, the trade wars always get resolved, right? I mean, and when they do, Wall Street gets happy, meaning – The stock market, which is going through declines in value, volatility in pricing, all settles itself out 
because just as they're unhappy about a trade war, they get very happy about trade peace. And therefore, our attitude is ignore all this. Or actually, you know what? Really? You could take advantage of this. How? By treating it as a buying opportunity. You could say, wait a minute. Stock prices right now are lower than they were a week ago. Now, if you were happy with stock prices last week, you got to love them this week because they're even lower. In other words, you should be using this as an opportunity to buy, to add to your investment accounts rather than getting scared and fill yourself with panic over fears that prices may go lower yet. And maybe they will in the short term, but on short answer, we're not concerned. We've seen this movie before. We know how it ends. At least that's our attitude about it. Might I be wrong? Well, I don't know. I'll get back to you. In the meantime, find something else to worry about, such as how your hometown baseball team is doing this week. I'll give you something to talk about. How are your investments doing? Because that's what all of this is really raising, isn't it? You're sitting there wondering, what does all this mean for my portfolio? How are my investments doing in the world of this? And you might be looking at your investments and comparing them to the Dow or the S&P 500 stock index and saying, golly gee, my account didn't go up nearly as much as the S&P 500. You know, year to date, the S&P 500 is up 18%. And you might say to yourself, golly gee willikers, my account certainly hasn't gone up that much. Well... I'd probably agree with you. I'll bet your account hasn't gone up that much. You know why? Because you don't own the S&P 500 exclusively. Oh, maybe you have an S&P 500 stock index fund inside your portfolio. Maybe it's a part of your portfolio, but you don't have your life savings in the S&P 500 stock index fund, do you? No. So why would you expect your return to match that of the S&P 500? In fact, how are you doing relative to everybody else? Well, why don't we take a look at professional investors? Who are some of the brightest professional investors who are managing billions and billions of dollars? Pension funds, right? We've got pension funds all around the country who are managing hundreds of billions of dollars on behalf of employees in municipal government as well as unions all around the country. CalPERS, the biggest pension fund in America, representing school teachers and public employees in California. We've got pension funds around the U.S. working for firefighters and police officers. We've got pension funds representing union workers, truck drivers, and factory workers. How are they doing with their investments? Well, the data is in, and according to the newest analysis, public pension funds that are managing a billion dollars or more, their median return for the 12 months ending July 31, 6.8%. You must be joking. That's it. 6.8%. That's all they earned. So I'll put it to you again. What's your return? And that's really the fundamental message. Many times we find people looking at the wrong data when they're trying to determine how am I doing relative to everybody else. And if all you hear on the evening news is what the market is doing, the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones Industrial Average, both of them up 18% year to date, 
you might conclude that you're supposed to be up 18% year-to-date. In fact, when you have a highly diversified portfolio that has a broad array of asset classes and market sectors, not just the 500 biggest stocks in America, but thousands of stocks all around the world, plus holdings in government bonds and corporate bonds, some of them short-term bonds, that have very low rates of interest because they have very high degrees of safety. You have real estate. You have natural resources. You have exponential technologies. You have commodities. You have energy, oil and gas, gold and precious metals. No, you're not going to have an 18% rate of return, nor should you expect that you would. The public pension funds have earned typically 6.8 over the last 12 months. I'm just trying to give you a perspective so that you don't have unrealistic expectations or unrealistic dissatisfaction when it comes to the evaluation of your portfolio. So how do you evaluate it then? Well, the best way, in my opinion, the most effective way, the only way that really matters is to look at your goals not your portfolio. Look at your goals. What are you trying to accomplish? How much money are you going to need, whether it's to pay for a kid's college or buy a home or generate income in retirement? How much money are you going to need? Are you on pace for accumulating that amount of money? If you are, you're in great shape. End of story. Without regard to to what did the Dow do, what's happening at the S&P, what's the year-to-date, none of that matters. Look at your goals. If you haven't identified your goals, if you haven't set a target, then how do you know if you're on track for achieving that target? That's what the financial planning process is all about. Let us help you confirm that you're saving the proper amount of money in the proper type of investments to enable you to achieve the goals that you have for yourself and your family. That's what it's all about. Triple Eight Plan Rick is how we can help you here at Edelman Financial Engines. We've been doing it for the last three decades for tens of thousands of folks all around the country. We're the largest independent registered investment advisory firm in the nation, and we're happy to help you as well. Triple Eight Seven Five Two Sixty Seven Forty Two. Visit us online if you like at rickedelman.com. Stay with us. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence of investing. Calls are pre-screened and the show was pre-recorded earlier this week. Rick is with Edelman Financial Engines, a part of Financial Engines Advisors, LLC, and the investment advisor that furnishes this program. Barron's has ranked Edelman Financial Services as the number one independent advisory firm in the nation based on assets managed, team size, experience, and regulatory record. Firms self-nominate. Investor returns and experience are not considered. Edelman combined with Financial Engines advisors in November 2018. Welcome back to the Rick Edelman Show. Triple Eight Plan Rick is our phone number here at Edelman Financial Engines. If you're facing conundrums of how to handle your money, if you're facing key decisions such as college decisions for yourself, your children, your grandchildren, estate planning, insurance, investments, taxes, mortgages, we're happy to help you. Just give us a call at Triple Eight Plan Rick. That's triple eight seven five two sixty seven forty two online at ricedelman dot com. Very happy to tell you that Investopedia has just named me one of the nation's top one hundred most influential financial advisors. 
They uh, created this list of financial advisors who are making what they say significant contributions about financial literacy, investing strategies, life stage planning, and wealth management. I'm very honored to be included on Investopedia's list of the nation's top 100 financial advisors. I had a busy week last week. I was on CNBC a whole bunch on Closing Bell. I wrote an op-ed for CNBC.com on the mistakes investors make and the reasons you're making them. I was also quoted by Insurance News Net and PlanSponsor.com, and CityWire did an interview with me. So it was a pretty busy week, all of it focusing on, yeah, our financial literacy efforts to improve the state of personal finance around the country. Something weird happened in Germany. Now, look, you're a conservative, cautious investor, so you want to put some of your money into the safest investment that there is. What is it? It's a bond issued by the federal government. Here in the United States, the 10-year treasury, this is a federal security called a treasury note. It matures in 10 years, and it's now paying 1.7% in interest. It's the lowest interest rate in the U.S., in three years. Why is the interest rate so low? Because it's so safe. It's issued by the federal government. You're not going to get your money back for 10 years, and you're pretty confident you will get your money back because it's the federal government making the promise. So the interest rate's very low at 1.7. That's in the United States. Do you know that Germany issues government bonds as well? They issue a 10-year security just like we do. They're not paying 1.7%. They're paying negative one-half. Well, you say we try that one again, huh? (laughs) Negative one-half. How can a government bond pay you a negative interest rate? What does that mean? It means you pay them. When interest rates go negative, it means investors are so worried about their local economy that Germans don't want to invest in the German stock market. They would rather buy a German bond issued by the government of Germany. And they're so willing to do this, they're willing to say to the German government, I'll pay you to take my money. I will give you, for every $100 I give you, I'll pay you 50 cents. You're earning no interest. You're paying a fee for the government to store your cash for you. Japan's got a negative interest rate as well. The United States doesn't. Investors are demanding interest from our government because our economy is much more stable and investors are much more confident about it. But yeah, you might ever hear something about negative interest rates. It's kind of wacky. Something else that you're likely to hear about, annuities. Has somebody pitched you the idea of buying an annuity product? Now, you know that we talk about annuities often on this program, not necessarily because of the products themselves, but because of the sales pitch that is used to convince you to buy the product. I have long lamented that there are three different kinds of financial advisors in our country. There are stockbrokers regulated by FINRA. There are insurance agents regulated by state insurance commissioners. And there are registered investment advisors like me and my firm 
regulated by the SEC. And only RIAs, registered investment advisors like us here at Edelman Financial Engines, only registered investment advisors are required by law to act as a fiduciary, to act in your best interest, putting your needs first. And I've long lamented that this fiduciary standard doesn't apply to stockbrokers who hold a license from FINRA or to insurance agents who hold a state insurance license. Well, now I'm very happy to tell you that the state of New York has implemented a regulation requiring that everybody who sells annuities act in the best interests of consumers. This is very exciting. The law now requires that the insurance industry consider the best interests of the consumer above everything else when making an annuity recommendation. There are also new disclosure requirements. And the regulation also forbids people who are selling annuities from calling themselves financial advisors unless they really are licensed that way. So an insurance agent can't pretend that they're an advisor. They have to acknowledge, yeah, I'm an insurance salesman. I'm an insurance agent. I can't pretend I'm an advisor. Well, guess who hates this new rule? You guessed it. The National Association of Insurance and Financial Advisors and the Independent Insurance Agents and Brokers of New York and the Professional Insurance Agents of New York and the Testa Brothers, an insurance brokerage firm, and Gary Slavin, who's an insurance salesmen. All of them hate the new rule. You know how I know? Because they all got together and they filed a lawsuit. And this lawsuit went all the way up to the New York Supreme Court. And last week, the court rejected their lawsuits. The court ruled that the new rule is neither arbitrary nor capricious in providing guidelines for trustworthy and competent practices and preventing self-dealing by insurance agents at the consumer's expense. I'm reading to you directly from the ruling. Against a backdrop of legitimate concerns for consumers, the burgeoning market of increasingly complex insurance and annuity products, and the rather remarkable rate at which consumers cancel their policies, the rule reflects a rational and reasonable movement toward consumer protection. Arguing against this standard is simply counterintuitive. That essentially was the quote from the ruling of the Supreme Court of New York forcing everybody in New York to act in your best interests. My prediction, I'll give you two of them. First, you're going to see a dramatic drop in the number of annuity sales that occurs in the state of New York as insurance agents realize they're not going to be able to succeed in selling products when they have to do it in a manner that conforms with the best interests standard. And number two, my prediction you're going to see a lot of other states doing something similar. Nevada and New Jersey are already working on it. Massachusetts has a rule in place already. You're going to see this become very widespread as state regulators are fed up with the oppressive, misleading, and consumer-harming sales practices by way too many people in the financial services business. I'm Rick Edelman, and I'm very excited to see this rule by the state of New York. 
You're listening to The Truth About Money. 888-PLAN-RICK is our phone number online at ricedelman.com. If we can help you make decisions in your best interests, let us know how we can help. 888-PLAN-RICK, rickedelman.com. You're listening to The Rick Edelman Show. I'm Rick Edelman. We often talk on this program about the state of investor and consumer readiness. How are we doing? How are you doing with your personal finances? Well, we often talk about it anecdotally, but I want to talk about it rather empirically, scientifically, and through effective research. And who better to talk about this than Jerry Walsh, who's the president of FINRA's Investor Education Foundation. Jerry, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me, Rick. So tell us about this latest study about how we're doing with our personal finances. Well, there's some good news and there's some bad news, kind of like with any great report, right? Yeah, figures. Uh, (laughs) We did a survey of 27,000-plus U.S. adults uh, to really benchmark how they're doing when it comes to financial capabilities. And how are we Um, doing? So despite the economic growth and declining unemployment that we've had over the past 10 years, um, we see persistent widening gaps uh, between those who are prospering and those who are struggling. And that's really frustrating because we are in the best economic environment that we've had in decades. We've got the stock market at all-time highs. Interest rates and inflation rates are at lows. Unemployment rates are at lows. Housing prices are strong. And yet, about half of Americans are missing out. Exactly. All right. So uh, some of the numbers you kind of get, I kind of understand. But one of them in particular, one of the statistics you came up with in your study just kind of floored me. So the the numbers that I kind of understand, half of Americans say they can't cover expenses for three months if they were to lose their jobs. So people are living paycheck to paycheck in many cases. Uh, Eight out of ten Americans say they have some kind of debt, and about a third of them say they have too much debt. Okay, I get that too. But here's the thing I don't get. The financial literacy rate since 2009, if we go back ten years ago, the financial literacy rate has gone down 20%. We're getting dumber. <laughs> Are we getting dumber, Rick, though? I'm not sure that that's exactly right. But that's what this um, says. The, the, well, the, the number of people who get the answers correct when quizzed on personal finance questions is lower than it was 10 years ago. Aren't we, does that mean we're getting dumber? There are a couple of things that might explain that number because seeing seeing that number decline is definitely a head-scratcher for us. There's no doubt. And, you know, 55-plus, the financial literacy levels are pretty much staying the same over the past 10 years. But folks who are 18 to 34 years old now have really never spent much time as adults in an environment where there have been high interest rates or high inflation. In other words, people are able to answer questions correctly if those questions pertained to their personal experiences. That's that's one of the things that we we are hypothesizing is that it really is experiential. There were also a couple of other hypotheses. A lot of municipalities cut back on funding for education. The moral of the story, I think, is that we as parents and grandparents of these younger adults can't assume that our kids know as much as we know 
We've gone through experiences they haven't. And so we need to make sure we're talking with our children and grandchildren about these subjects because we can't assume that when they're getting ready to buy a house, they understand how the mortgage works. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, among among people who feel like they're underwater on their homes, it tends to be the younger people who maybe didn't understand how mortgages work. So, yeah, all those concepts are really important. And it's really important that we focus on how critical financial education is because, you know, we see that people, just to start with, Rick, fewer than a third of Americans have been exposed to financial education. And so we're already facing an uphill battle when it comes to financial literacy because very few people are exposed to it either in high school or college or the workplace. But the people who have been and the people who have been exposed to 10 or more hours, to uh, a program that they consider high quality, they tend to have more positive financial behaviors. They're less likely to be overdrawing their checking account. They're less likely to be late on a mortgage payment or on any other kind of debt payment. They're less likely to engage in high-cost borrowing behaviors. So these these concepts of financial education are super important. The education works. And the neat part is it's not difficult. It's not complex. This stuff isn't rocket science. And it's easy to people to grasp fundamental financial concepts that can help them make much better financial decisions. So I agree with you. And we need to keep harping on this theme of financial education because it's really key. And I'll take it a step further. We, we talked a little bit a moment ago about how people rely on their own experiences to help them make good financial decisions. But if over the last 10 years we haven't experienced high interest rates or high inflation, you don't have that experience, and therefore you're not prepared for when that experience occurs. And that's why one of the messages I harp on a lot is don't rely on your personal experience. Look at the experiences of others. Learn from them so that you don't have to go through it yourself. And and to that point, there are a couple of data items in your study that showed half of the Americans who have student loans today say they wish they had chosen a less expensive college so that it could have avoided some of the debt. And half of those who have student loans say they didn't understand how much they would owe when they got those loans. That's heartbreaking because it suggests that there's college uh, debt remorse, you know, buyer's remorse. I wouldn't have gone to this school if I'd known just how much it was going to cost me. It's frightening. It's very frightening. And and as a result, you have a student who says, I'm headed to college. I'm not going to talk to anyone who went to college to get their advice with the benefit of their experience. I'm just going to go for it myself and end up making the same mistakes they did. So all we need to do is learn from the experiences of others. It's a lot faster, a lot cheaper, a lot easier, and you could largely help avoid the remorse that others are experiencing. Exactly. And, and and figuring out how to do the math so that you do understand how much you're going to owe. FINRA has some guidance on its website in the investor section, a whole series on saving for college and different ways that you can save for college and understanding the cost of college. FINRA has done a lot of work over the years to improve financial education for consumers, and you offer a lot of content at your website. So tell everybody what the website is for FINRA so folks can go there to learn more. It's FINRA.org, and you can click on the investor section, and you'll open up an array of tools and resources. So whether you're just getting started or you're a seasoned investor, there are tools and resources that you can use. Jerry, it's always uh, fun to have you on the program. Thanks for joining me again today. 
Thanks again. That's Jerry Walsh, the president of FINRA's Investor Education Foundation. She's also SVP of FINRA's Office of Investor Education. Do you ever wake up in the middle of the night or stop yourself mid-sentence wondering if you're going to run out of money in retirement? I want to help you avoid that dilemma, so I invite you to join us for one of our free live events. The event is called Three Keys to Retirement Planning. You'll learn about Social Security, estate planning, and investing for retirement. We're presenting the event in upcoming weeks in Columbia, Pittsburgh, Youngstown, Baltimore, Grand Rapids, New Orleans, and Baton Rouge. The events are free, but space can fill up quickly. So go to rickedelman.com, that's ricedelman.com, to register right now. You can also go to the seminar page at ricedelman.com to find out all the dates and locations all across the country where we're going to be presenting the seminar, Three Keys to Retirement Planning. We're heading off to Morris, Illinois, to talk with Bill. He's on the telephone. Welcome to the program, Bill. How are you? Good. I enjoy listening to your show, Rick. Thank you. I appreciate that. What can I do for you? My question is, what is a Trump trust? An Internet ad said that people are collecting thousands of dollars from the trust. The ad stated that as part of his huge tax cut, President Trump funneled $11 billion to the pockets of Trump trust holders. What are they talking about? I give up. What are they talking about? (laughs) In other words, Bill, what you've been reading is a scam. Are they trying to, is part of what you've been reading suggesting that you send money to someone? I didn't, it sounded too phony to me and I didn't pursue it any further. That's why I was going to ask you if there was such a thing. Yeah, no, there isn't. Uh, it, 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 it's a, it sounds like a scam online taking advantage of today's political environment to trick people into sending money to some crooks or con artists, which you'll never see again. Uh, now, in the off chance that I'm wrong about this, the Trump Trust is uh, a series of estate planning strategies that the Trump family has engaged in for the management of their personal and business assets. It's very common for wealthy individuals to engage in planning of this type, but that is something that they did for themselves, not something that is available to you. I mean, you can't access the Trump family trust for yourself, nor was there any legislation proposed by the president to create a trust device under his namesake for the purposes of the rest of Americans. And anybody who tries to claim that there is such a thing is has to be a crook. I was curious because it referenced the, uh, the tax bill, so I thought the what, tax bill that I didn't... Bill, whatever website you found this content on... You must never visit again. Okay. 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 So I'm glad you checked with me. I'm really, really glad because too often people read something on the web. They take it as gospel. They act on whatever it happens to tell them to do. They've got get-rich-quick nonsense in their eyes. You said it correct. Sounded too good to be true. And, in fact, I have no doubts that that is correct. All right. Thank you. You're very welcome. I appreciate your telephone call. I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to The Truth About Money. Sometimes the truth hurts. Stay with us for more here on The Rick Edelman Show. 888-PLAN-RICK, online at ricedelman.com. We're taking telephone calls here on The Rick Edelman Show. Off to Chicagoland, Ken is with us. How are you doing, Ken? I'm doing fine, Rick. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller, and I've read all your books. 
Uh, my wife and I, we're in our early 70s, and we're blessed to be in a position where our retirement is financially secure. And we established individual 529 college savings plans for each of our grandchildren as they were born. The oldest is eight. The youngest is uh, now four. They're a long way off from college, obviously. Now, I'm the owner of each of the accounts, and uh, my wife is the successor owner. And we anticipate that these accounts will continue to grow as we put a lot of money in, uh, enough so that our grandchildren's undergraduate and maybe even much, if not all, the graduate school expenses will be covered. So here's my question about 529 plans. Should we at some point change the ownership of these grandparent-owned 529 accounts? And if so, to whom? To the parent? To the student? And when, if at all, should the ownership be changed? You know, all the advice I've read and, and heard seems to focus on the FAFSA form and maximizing financial aid. But the student won't need the financial aid, then it seems to me that FAFSA forms and all that uh, ownership are moot points until such time when we grandparents uh, pass on. So what do you say? Am I missing anything in this? No, you're not. Your, your observation is correct. I'm assuming you're a wealthy person. <laughs> I mean, you, you've Well, con- we're, we're, we're financially secure at this point. Let's put it that way. So you've contributed how much money to each of these accounts? Uh, right now, we've contributed between 144 and $188,000 into each of the accounts, and we intend to stop once we reach 200000 for uh, each child, uh, which will happen sometime in the next year or two. Got it. So and, that's a million dollars you and your wife are contributing to these five accounts for these five grandchildren. Correct. Like correct. I said, each you're a wealthy. Accounts- like I said, you're a wealthy individual. Congratulations. Uh, Good for you. All right. Thank uh, you. Thank you very much. So, I feel very blessed about that. As well, you should. It's the American dream, and I'm very proud of you and your wife for your success. Uh, and your uh, not only your success, but your uh, support of the family. Um, just because people accumulate money doesn't mean that they share it with anybody. So good for you on both sides. Um, now, let me talk about the pragmatic elements of this. Your goal in an ideal world is to pay for their complete college educations, both undergrad and graduate, yes? Yes. Okay. So funding out up to $200,000 is plenty. Uh, You can always – chances are you'll still be alive when the kids do get to college. And if you discover at that time that it's not enough, say one of them decides to go to medical school, uh, you can always write additional checks. So – um, not a concern on the upside, meaning on the uh, overfunding element, if you are confident that the kids will not only go to college, but they'll also go to grad school of some type. Uh, the concern that I have is the flip side. My concern is that the child doesn't go to college or is a brilliant kid or a fabulous athlete and does win scholarships and doesn't need your money, or the cost of college becomes dramatically lower than it is today or has historically been, and it doesn't cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to college. For all of those reasons, you may discover that you have overfunded the 529 plans. Uh, And for that reason, I might suggest to you that you stop funding the 529s because there are restrictions. If you don't use the money for college, The withdrawals are then subject to ordinary tax rates plus a 10% penalty. So I would want you to be careful about whether or not you're inadvertently, accidentally overfunding the accounts. Now, there's a couple of games we can play to reduce that risk. One of them is that just because you've put money into an account for a child 
doesn't mean you actually have to use the money for that child. You could leave the money there for that child's child. Right. And this way, between the two generations, chances are you'll use up all the money. So I'm not terribly worried that you have funded it as much as you have. I just want to put in the back of your mind the notion, are we sure we need to be giving them all this money for this purpose? Because you could always divert money instead to down payments on houses in their 20s and 30s. You know, it doesn't have to be all for college. Your goal is supporting the kids and helping them get a good start in life. And there are lots of ways you can do it. You can do it with cars. You can do it with houses as well as you can do it with education. Uh, and, and let alone who knows what there might be health care costs, heaven forbid, that you've got to deal with in the future. So I would just put it all that as food for thought as you're going through your planning process. Second, have you discussed what you're doing with the parents? They know about this, Yes. yes? Yes, yes. The, the the parents are fully informed of the amount that is in each Good. Uh, of the children's uh, your plans. I Good. provide them uh, and, annually with what the with, with what the uh, statements are. Super, and by extension, the in laws also know. By my children's spouses, is that what you're referring to? Yeah. In other words, is it your son or your daughter uh, for all these kids? Oh. Right, right. So the, their their spouses know about this as well, and therefore their spouses' parents also know. Um, I'm not sure about that. And the reason I bring it up is that I want to make sure that if you're busy doing all of this funding, which is likely to be sufficient for the need, that they also aren't doing this, or there really will be an overfunding problem. Okay. All right. That's a good point. So you just want to make sure that your kids are talking to their spouses and that their spouses are talking to their parents. In other words, hey, don't worry, we got college covered. You guys buy the houses, you know, that, you know, whatever. But I just want to make sure that there isn't twice as much money going into these accounts as you were thinking. Now to the real question you asked, who should the owner of these accounts be? It's perfectly fine to leave it the way you have it. You're the owner of the account. The children are the beneficiaries. If you were to pass away, your wife becomes the owner of the account. She's the secondary owner of the account. Perfectly fine. Perfectly fine. If you die, she becomes the account's owner. She can then name a secondary or successor owner, and she could then name the children, the the parents of of the grandchildren. Right. And you're right. This ownership question is predominantly an issue of qualifying for financial aid. That's an irrelevant subject because your grandkids aren't going to need financial aid. You're the financial aider. That is a word. Um, And by extension, I don't think you need to be terribly focusing on estate taxes either. I'll put the question to you. Is the net worth of you and your wife significantly higher than $20 million? No. Then we don't have to worry much about estate tax implications either. Instead, what I really want to make sure you do as the kids approach college age, that you work with the parents – to facilitate a plan for the distribution of the money so that you are, in fact, using the money for college to minimize the risk that there's excess money left over because of the tax problem. In other words, if you use the money for college, all the profits come out tax-free. But if you don't use the money for college, taxes and penalties will apply. I I get that, yes. So start indoctrinating the children now that this big bucket of money is there for them, and they had darn well better use it, and the only way for them to do that is to go to college. Exactly, exactly. In fact, they need to go to an expensive college. 
<laughs> Wouldn't hurt if they changed their majors a few times, so the college took eight years instead of four. You know, you get my drift. <laughs> I get it. I get it, sir. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Rick. You've uh, uh, answered the question and brought up a few other uh, uh, relevant issues uh, with it as well, and I appreciate that very much. And um, good work. It's my pleasure, Ken. Thank you so much for the phone call. I'm really glad you did. Okay, thanks. Yep, bye-bye. That was Ken from Chicagoland here on the Rick Edelman Show. You can do the same as he did. Call us with your financial questions, 888-PLAN-RICK. That's 888-752-6742. And if you need a new set of grandparents, I can maybe put you in touch with Ken. Welcome back to the program. Rick Edelman here on KFI AM640. Thanks for hanging around this half hour. I'm really excited to tell you that the new children's book that my wife Jean and I wrote that we distributed early last year, The Squirrel Manifesto, has just won the grand award by the Apex Awards for Publication Excellence. The Apex Awards are based on excellence in graphic design, editorial content, and overall communications excellence. They only award one grand award in each main category, so we're very honored that the Squirrel Manifesto received their grand award. We also won three awards of excellence, two of them for our monthly newsletter, Inside Personal Finance, for financial and investment writing. And we also won an award of excellence for our website at rickedelman.com. So we're really excited. This was the 31st annual awards. Uh, that the Apex uh, has been putting out for publication excellence, the more than 1,200 entries. And we received the grand award for the children's book, The Squirrel Manifesto. I'll tell you what's not award-winning, the FTC's handling of the data breach by Equifax. I'm sure you remember the Equifax data breach back in 2017 147 million Americans had their data stolen when Equifax got hacked. And now the FTC, the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, all 50 states and territories, they all agreed to a settlement. Equifax is now paying $700 million in fines. And I told you a couple of weeks ago here on the program that the average American is eligible for applying for a $125 refund. If you can show that you suffered personal harm, incurred specific costs, you can get up to $20,000. But they said the typical American will get $125. Now, this week, the FTC says not likely. They say that they are overwhelmed by consumers who are seeking compensation, asking for that 125 bucks, and the FTC says that due to the high volume of requests, most people will get only a small amount of money. You see, of the $700 million in fines, they set aside only $31 million for financial compensation to the affected consumers. Now, if all 147 million Americans ask for a piece of the $31 million. You know what it works out to per person? 21 cents. I am very disappointed. How on earth did the FTC, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, there's an oxymoron if I ever heard it, all 50 states, how did they collectively agree to a settlement that will collectively provide 
21 cents for each American. By the way, in order to give all of us 125 bucks a piece, the fine would have had to have been not 700 million, but 18 billion dollars. You can't handle the truth. So, yeah, Equifax skated. And the week after this nonsense announcement, Capital One just announced that they got hacked. They're the fifth biggest credit card issuer in America. 140,000 social security numbers, 80,000 bank account numbers, credit scores, payment histories, credit limits. Yeah, they caught the perpetrator, but so what? Even if you don't have a Capital One credit card, your data might have been hacked. Why? In case you had applied for credit at Capital One, you may discover that the hackers stole your data, too, even if your credit card application was denied. And then there is the news, the latest saga of Don Bennett. We're busted. Yes, Don Bennett, who is, uh, you may know of her, she used to be on the radio. She was a financial advisor, and she has just been sentenced to 20 years in prison for stealing $20 million. That's a year for every million dollars. She stole $20 million from 46 of her clients. The judge ordered her not only to 20 years in prison, but to pay $14.5 million in restitution and to forfeit $14.3 million in profit. Dawn was found guilty of 17 counts of conspiracy, securities fraud, wire fraud, bank fraud, and making false statements on a loan application. She tricked 46 of her clients into giving her money supposedly to invest in an internet clothing business. She promised them 15% annual interest rate. She even tricked a bank into giving her a $750,000 line of credit. She gave them fake brokerage account statements showing that she was worth $4 million. In reality, the account was worth not $4 million, but thirty-five. No, not $35 million, just $35. $35 is all she had in the account, but she pretended it was worth $4 million. What did she do with all that money? Well, she used it to pay off earlier investors, a classic Ponzi scheme. She also spent five hundred grand on a luxury suite to watch the Dallas Cowboys. She also used some of the money to pay for cosmetic surgery. But here's the best part of the story. She also spent $800,000 to hire priests in India to perform rituals that were aimed at attacking investigators from the SEC and the FBI. <laughs> she was trying to have hoodoo spells imposed on the investigators to get them off her back and the result was, well... Well, I'm guilty. Well, I'm guilty. And I'll be guilty all the rest of my life. I mean, it's really fascinating. When the investigators went into her house with a warrant and searched through the house, they opened the refrigerator door and discover the potions and lotions and materials that these witchcraft folks were engaging in, you know what the investigator said. Well, there's something you don't see every day. And yes, indeedy, 
It uh, was a nine-day trial, and it only took the jury five hours to convict Don Bennett. The judge said Don Bennett's greed knew no bounds as she knowingly defrauded elderly retirees of their life savings. I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to The Truth About Money. Here's something that is a little bit concerning, more down to earth. Are you buying a new car? 32% of new car loans are for six to seven years. 32%. One out of three of the people who are buying new cars are getting car loans for six to seven years. A decade ago, only 12% of car loans were so long. This is a problem. You really shouldn't be doing this. You have to recognize the likelihood you'll really keep the car for six or seven years. Because if you only keep the car four years, typically warranties are four years or less, you'll still owe more at the end of five or six years than the car is worth, which means you can't sell it without being upside down. So what do a lot of people do? A third of new car buyers They take the money they owe on the old car and roll it over into the loan of the new car, which means they're not only borrowing money to buy the new car, they're using that loan to carry over the cost of the old car. You're now paying for two cars even though you only have one of them. Before you get a loan that is beyond four years on your car, talk with us here at Edelman Financial Engines so that we can help you evaluate How much of a car can you really afford to buy so that you don't end up with too high a monthly payment for too long a period of time, obligating future income you haven't even yet earned to help you avoid this big dilemma? Issues such as buying a car is an important element in your broader financial planning. Don't ignore it. Get financial advice from a professional financial planner when you're ready to get your next automobile. Call us, 888-PLAN-REC. We're happy to help. Visit us online at ricestellman.com. Welcome back to the Rick Edelman Show. 888-PLAN-REC for your financial questions online at ricestellman.com. Let's head off to Goodyear, Arizona. Take a telephone call. we got Rich on the phone. How you doing, Rich? Hi, Rick. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you guys? Doing fabulous. Thank you so much. How can I help you today? Well, I, I listened to you for, for many years, and in fact, uh, a, a while back, we were going to schedule this call a long time ago, and shortly thereafter, my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer, so everything was put on hold. Mm. She's uh, doing amazing now, all done. Oh, good. And Yeah, and in that period of time, from then to now, uh, you know, I executed a retirement plan, and we we just moved from New York to to Arizona in July. Awesome! And uh, after 52 years of working, uh, I basically was able to put together after buying the house that we live in now uh, about 1.29 million dollars. And the the problem that I'm facing in my mind is I'm very fearful and paranoid of the financial markets. And, you know, the lion's share of this money is in CDs and bonds. And, I, you know, it's maybe garnering around 3%. The only solace I get from that is that, you know, when somebody on Wall Street has a bad day, 
I look at my dough and it's still there. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I, before I did this, you know, the firm that held my money, you know, basically did a retirement plan and, and said, listen, you know, you're a very conservative guy. You know, if you average, you know, two and a half percent return, you know, this money with what we need and we, we need, you know, basically $5,000 a month. Uh, I'm going to begin getting, uh, probably a net check from social security of, uh, $1,900 a month. That's after they take out part B and then they, I have to pay for my, uh, supplement. And then my wife who's 59, when she left work, uh, we elected to buy her health insurance via Cobra cause it was amazing health insurance during her illness. And we're only able to buy that for 18 months, and it costs $850 a month. So we look at our Social Security check coming in as basically a health care fund because we don't know where that whole thing is going. So the $5,000 a month we need is really all we need to live on and pay our expenses. All right, let me, so let me ask so you this. Rich, let me ask you this. Is your wife receiving Social Security as well? No, she's only 59, so she's not going to put in for it. Uh, until she's 62. And how much will she get when she does? She'll she'll get $800 a month. And that covers the cost of health care, as you said? Yeah. Is that part of the five grand of expenses? No, no. So in other words, you're really spending closer to six grand a month. Well, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, but the 2000 we get from Social Security, we're just looking at that as Got to it. pay for health care. All right, let me ask you this question. Uh, do you have children? None. Okay. When you die, you and your wife, you currently have $1.3 million. When the two of you die, does it matter to you how much of that is left? No. Okay. So let's just run through the numbers here. You need sixty grand a year in income. You're getting about twenty-three grand a year from Social Security, which means you need to come up with thirty-seven grand from your investments. At 3% interest, which is what you said you're pretty much earning off of your money, that's 39000 a year, two grand more than you need. So you're right. Having your money sitting in super safe accounts like investment-grade bonds, bank CDs, U.S. Treasuries, etc., if it's producing the thirty-nine grand a year you need, you're perfectly fine. And that's not even dipping into the principal of the $1.3 million you also got. If you dipped into the principal, you could actually increase your income beyond the five grand a month that you're currently spending. You could probably spend six grand or seven grand a month. Enjoy yourselves a little bit. Well, the good point about what you brought up is, uh, you know, because we don't have long-term health care insurance because anything could happen with your health. Right. Uh, and we know that that could be big dollars. And we also don't know what's going to happen in 18 months after this Cobra health insurance expires uh, for my wife. So there are a couple of variables, but I was basically calling to see if I'm kind of on on track. So, with, yes, here's you know, the short answer. What we want to do. Rich, here's the short answer for you. You and your wife are in fine shape. You're in good economic condition, excellent economic condition, frankly. I think you're fine to go slow, wait for your wife to begin Social Security payments. Let's wait and see what her health uh, insurance expenses are going to be. But I think at the end you're going to be perfectly fine. I think your strategy is perfectly fine, although I would argue myself that you shouldn't 
be placing 1.3 million entirely in super safe accounts. I don't think you need to be so afraid and paranoid about the financial markets. But since you are, and since you can afford to be, I'm not going to try to encourage you to change what you're doing. Because you, well, I do have I do have about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in equities. And well, funds. wahoo! So. That's only ten percent <laughs> of your portfolio. You know, it ought to be forty percent. So I'm not going to try to convince oh. you of that fact because okay. you're fine. My point is, what I want you to really focus on a much more important financial planning premise. You ready for this? Yep. Don't die rich. Okay. My concern is that you aren't spending as much money as you and your wife can truly afford to spend. So here's what I want you to do. It's real simple. When you go out to eat in a restaurant, I don't want you to read the menu right to left. Do you do that? We don't. Good. So I don't want you to look at the prices. If you want the shrimp cocktail, get the shrimp cocktail. Without regard to what it costs. You can afford it. How old's your car? I just I just ordered a brand new one. What what kind of car? I bought a 2019 Scat Pack Dodge Challenger. Did you love the car? Is it really awesome? The car of your it's dreams? It's amazing. In fact, I'll tell you a financial thing you're going to appreciate. I ordered it from New York to be shipped to Arizona in June. Yeah. It was supposed to be here the middle of July. It got delayed at the plant. And when I called yesterday to find out what the status was, he said it's not going to be here till the middle of August. By the way, they started a $4,000 rebate on that car, so you're going to end up paying $4,000 less. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> now, that's four grand that uh, you'll be able to go do something fun with. So, so I'm glad you're living the lifestyle that you are entitled to live. You've worked hard throughout your lives to amass this uh, amount of money. Your wife has already had one health issue. I'm really glad to see the two of you are enjoying yourselves. You've relocated to the sunny Southwest. You're having a great time. Keep it up, okay? Thank you so much for your help. You made me feel uh, very much more at ease. I'm glad. That's my job. And uh, wish you the very best, Rich. Thanks for calling. Take care and be well. You too. That's Rich from Goodyear, Arizona. He moved to the right place. Goodyear. You're listening to The Truth About Money. I'm Rick Edelman. You've heard the notion of reverse mortgages, right? You're in retirement. You need extra income. You've got a lot of equity in your house. Why not tap into that home equity and generate a monthly income for yourself for as long as you live? That's the promise of a reverse mortgage. Unfortunately, as I've told you many times here on the program, reverse mortgages come with lots of fine print, fees and expenses to obtain the mortgage, an interest rate that's higher than other loans often are, and the income is dictated to you by the mortgage lender. You don't get to choose how much income you get. They tell you how much income you get, and that income, by the way, doesn't rise with inflation. And if you ever move out of that house, even if your spouse is still in it, if you're the sole owner... The house has to be sold in order to pay back the loan. Forget about an inheritance to the children. Now comes along a study from George Mason University that takes a detailed description of the features and history of reverse mortgages, reviews the motivations people have to use their houses as a way to pay retirement expenses, and guess what the study reveals. It finds that only 12 to 14 percent of all retiree households are suitable for reverse mortgages, only 12 to 14%. In other words, it's about one out of 10 should consider doing this. 
Keep that in mind the next time someone pitches a reverse mortgage to you. You're listening to The Rick Edelman Show. 888-PLAN-RICK, online at ricestellman.com. Taking telephone calls here on the Rick Edelman Show, heading off to Grand Rapids. David is with us on the program. How are you, David? Very good. Yourself? Doing terrific. Thank you. What can I do for you? Well, I wanted to get some advice from you regarding a book that I just finished. The author is David McKnight, Mm. and it's The Power of Zero. Yep. Are you familiar with that? Yep. Excellent. Um, and what, what I'm trying to do is move more of our 401ks to our Roth IRAs in the hopes of getting closer to a zero tax bracket so that it does not affect my Social Security or my premium increases for uh, Medicare. Uh-huh. He is uh, proposing a LRIP system, which is a life insurance. I'm not a real fan of life insurance. I think life insurance should be for death benefits and not necessarily for a, um, an investment. And looking for your recommendation. I think you have it right on both counts. The notion of moving money from a 401k to a Roth, or, or an IRA for that matter, moving any kind of retirement account to a Roth, is something that is worthy of consideration. Uh, however, Uh, You need to be aware of the downside to it, and there are two downsides. First, when you convert the money to the Roth, you're going to pay taxes immediately on the full value of that account. That's why the Roth becomes tax-free in the future. You've already paid the tax. So if there's no difference in tax rates between now and the future, then there's no economic benefit to doing the Roth conversion. So part of the rationale you're using is, A, you think taxes will rise, so better to pay the tax now at a lower rate than the future higher rate. And second, you're concerned about the income that you do receive in the future causing you to pay higher Medicare payments and so on. So you're betting on that scenario, which is not necessarily a bad bet, but you just have to make sure you're really comfortable with that bet because of the other downside. You're also assuming that the Roth, which is currently tax-free for those distributions, you're assuming that they will always be tax-free. You're assuming Congress will never change the law about the Roth IRA and that the distributions will always be tax-free. I'm not sure that that is going to be true. It very well may be true. If you were to ask any member of Congress today, they would say to you, no way will I ever tax the Roth. The problem is that if we're talking 20 years from now, that's 10 Congresses from now. The current members of Congress aren't going to be around. So who knows what economic mess the country might be in. And if Congress is desperately looking for revenue and they see the trillions of dollars that are socked away in Roth accounts, they may be tempted to tax them, which means you'll end up having paying taxes twice, once now to move the money into the Roth and then again when you withdraw from the Roth. So I'm not arguing that that's going to be the case. I'm just simply saying, how much do you trust Congress? Not very much. <laughs> with those thoughts in mind, you can decide with you know all good info available to you whether or not you like the idea. And you will not be crazy if you choose to do the conversion, provided you're doing it on an informed basis. You will also not be crazy to say, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to leave the money where it is, and I'll worry about it later. 
and the reason I don't know which is the right answer is because I don't know what the future interest rates are going to be. I don't know what the future tax rates are going to be. I don't know what the future laws are going to be. And that, mm-hmm. uh, and so we just kind of have to shrug our shoulders and make the best decision we can based on available information at the moment. So that's the first Excellent. scenario. Okay. Now let me give the second scenario where you were also correct. Your notion that David McKnight's strategy of avoiding taxes by taking all of your money and putting them into life insurance policies, you're right, that's nonsense. David McKnight is an insurance salesman, and if you look on his website and you look at a lot of his uh, web activities, it's all designed to teach insurance agents how to sell more life insurance because they make a lot of money, a lot of commissions by convincing people to put a lot of cash into insurance contracts. And the only people who recommend the use of insurance for investment purposes are the insurance companies and the insurance salesmen who make a living selling these products for big commissions. So, no, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's not in your best interest. I have never seen in my 33 years of being in this industry any independent, objective, third-party report, study, or analysis from any government agency, any academic organization, or any source, think tank or otherwise, endorsing the idea of buying life insurance for investment purposes. So we'll leave it at that. Very good. I appreciate your, um, your input. It's my pleasure, David. Thank you so much for calling, and I very much wish you the best. And if you've got a similar question of should I convert my IRA to the Roth or my 401k to the Roth, make sure you fully understand the implications of both choices, doing it versus not doing it. And very often you're not aware of all those implications. David was on the ball with this. He knew that the more money he had in income in retirement, the more he'd be paying for Medicare. Did you know that? And if you didn't know that, what else don't you know? Because your lack of knowledge could be causing you accidentally to make a financial decision That isn't in your best interest. So if you're facing these kinds of questions, give us a call at 888-PLAN-RICK. We can help you make sure you have all the facts so that you can make an informed decision that is in your best interest. This is the Rick Edelman Show. Let's uh, continue with our telephone call, shall we? Let's head off to Bethesda, Maryland. Tara's with us on the air. How are you doing, Tara? Hi, Rick. I'm doing well. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. How can I help you? Um... I heard your talk about the index universal life insurance on the show last week. Yes. I agree with you that one should not use insurance as an investment tool. I appreciate very much the analysis of how the advertisement is misleading. However, you forgot to consider the insurance aspect of it, which is actually a large chunk of the of the fund, of the equity. Personally, I would not involve in this equity index myself, but my sister-in-law did it, and she believes that a million or so insurance is a good chunk of money for her heir when she dies. I appreciate that very much, and uh, I did talk about that aspect on the show last week. Let me make sure we recap this for those who might have missed it. We had a caller talk about the fact that he was getting a sales pitch to take uh, a bunch of money out of a retirement account and put it all into 
a uh, something called an indexed universal life insurance policy. The theory, he said, was that he would not have to pay taxes on this money and everything was guaranteed and he would make fabulous returns. And I demonstrated to him why that sales pitch was severely flawed, highly misleading, and that he didn't have material facts that were important to be able to make a good, informed decision. And that's what Tara is telling me, that yes, it's a bad idea. However, we do have to acknowledge that while insurance is a bad idea for investment purposes, insurance is a good idea for insurance purposes. So we have to begin with a very simple question. And you should ask yourself this question. If you die, is another person financially harmed? Now, let's say that you're married with a spouse who is a stay-at-home spouse, doesn't earn an income, and you've got three young kids, and you're the sole breadwinner in the family. If you die, yeah, your spouse who survives you and your three children will be in financial jeopardy because they've lost the income that you're providing. That's a really good, simple example of an insurable need. You need to buy life insurance to protect your spouse and children. Now we end up with two more questions. First, how much insurance do you need? Tara, you said your sister bought a million dollars worth of life insurance. Is that the right number? We need to do a calculation to determine how much life insurance do we need to provide your family. Second, what kind of insurance policy should we obtain? There are two basic kinds, temporary insurance and permanent insurance. Temporary means that you buy the policy and it lasts for one year or five years or 10 or 20 or 30 years. It's called term life. It has a certain term to it. And after 20 years, if you buy a 20-year term life policy, the policy disappears. It goes away after 20 years. Is that good or bad? Well, if you think you'll outgrow the need for the insurance in 20 years, for example, the kids will be out of college by then, sure, a 20-year term life policy might solve the need. And it's cheap. Because the insurance company knows you're throwing it away after 20 years. So that's a good way to go if you have a temporary need for insurance, even if you can call 20 years temporary. On the other hand, you might need insurance for your whole life. You might need permanent insurance because no matter when you die, your spouse will need money. So you would want to buy a permanent policy in a case like that. So what kind of policy you buy and how much insurance you buy depends entirely on your circumstances. So yes, Tara, I might be able to agree with you that your sister did a good thing at buying a life insurance policy, and I might be able to agree with you that she bought the right amount of insurance, but I'm not sure that I would agree with you that the type of policy she bought was the best policy for her situation. And the reason I think that is that in my experience, the people who tend to be recommending this kind of insurance policy are the commission-based product-pushing salesmen who make a big commission selling those policies, as opposed to an independent, objective, fee-based advisor who doesn't make commissions selling policies of one sort or another, but simply gives you advice as a fiduciary that's in your best interest. That's how my colleagues and I here at Edelman Financial Engines behave with our clients. So yes, we routinely work with our clients to help them determine, do you need insurance? And if so, how much? And what kind of policy is best for you and your family? 
And we have never concluded that index universal life insurance is the right answer. So I would encourage you, if you are trying to resolve these questions yourself, do I need life insurance? How much do I therefore need? And what kind of policy is best to give us a call at 888-PLAN-RICK so that we can help you figure this out before you might make a costly mistake. I'm Rick Edelman. This is The Truth About Money. 888-PLAN-RICK to reach us here at Edelman Financial Engines. You can visit us online as well at ricestellman.com. I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to The Truth About Money. I'm going to give you a sentence, and you already know what this sentence is. It's harder to be in the American middle class than it used to be. The median household income in this country is now $61,000. That's up 14% since 1990 in real economic terms. Inflation adjusted, a 14% increase over the past 25 years. That's exciting. The problem is that although incomes are up 14% inflation adjusted, housing prices are up 300%. Colleges are up more than 300%, and health care costs are up 51%. So although, yeah, your income is up nicely, your income has not risen nearly as much as the cost of housing, education, or health care. This is why you may be finding it a bit more challenging to live the lifestyle you want while saving for retirement compared to 25 years ago, and that's why you need to call us so that we can help you figure out how to pay for the expenses you're currently incurring while saving for the expenses that you haven't yet incurred but will in your retirement. Triple Eight Plan Rick is how you reach us. We're heading off to Staten Island to talk with Dawn. Welcome to the program, Dawn. How are you? Hi. Thank you for having me. I am good today. Thank you. Staten Island, wonderful New York. Well, how can I help you? Um, I have a question being a high school teacher. What would you include in a high school curriculum about personal finance? Uh, I'm thrilled that you're a school teacher and thrilled that you're asking the question about how to teach your students about personal finance. Because as you painfully know, we tend to graduate financially illiterate and unprepared for the Mm -hmm. stuff that we're going to face in uh, our adult lives. So what I would teach them uh, is two core subjects, uh, if I could only teach two. The first is credit and debt. I would Mm -hmm. want them to understand how money works. What does it take to earn money and what does it cost to use money? When I say cost, I mean the cost of using credit cards. Right. Uh, Many times uh, we are buying with borrowed money, everything from buying houses and cars to uh, Friday night dates with friends. Uh, we are you, we're flipping out you know debit cards and credit cards out of our wallets rather than flipping cash out of our wallets and purses. And kids don't often realize, not just kids but adults as well, Adult, often, yeah. often don't realize that there are massive expenses associated with using plastic. So I would want them to understand the implication of using these cards and basically borrowing money uh, and, and obligating future income today, meaning I spend the money today to buy anything from a beer to uh, clothing 
to jewelry, to a movie ticket, to a big screen TV or an automobile, by the use of the plastic or signing that loan application, I'm obligating my future income today so that when I do earn that money in the future, it's already spent. It's already obligated. And so they need to understand that implication. Mm -hmm. By extension, where it really comes home for high school kids is college. Mm -hmm. They need to understand the implication of obtaining student loans. Uh, to pay for school because they think that just by signing this piece of paper, they get to go to college and their attitude is once I graduate and earn an income from a job, I'll use that income to pay the student loan debt. They have no idea how much that student loan debt is going to be. They have no idea how much the monthly payments are going to cost relative to the incomes they're going to earn. So I would teach them about credit and debt first. The Mm -hmm. second thing I would teach them is compound growth. Show them the difference between having $100 a month grow at 2% interest versus 5% interest versus 8% interest. They will be blown away by the incredible power of compounding because Mm -hmm. most folks don't understand that it's time that makes the most difference. A lot of folks are cavalier. Oh, I'll save in my 40s and 50s when I'm making more money. In my 20s and 30s, I'm more interested in getting an apartment and buying a car and buying clothes and enjoying myself. And I'll save in the future because I've got plenty of time. And by giving away the 20 years that the money could have been enjoying compound growth, that's where they lose most of the future wealth. And the right. second piece related to that is the rate of return. If they are only compounding their growth at a bank account rate of 1% or 2%, as opposed to the stock market rate of 6% or 8% or 10%, massive difference in values over the course of their lives. So we need to teach them the importance of saving early and consistently and Mm -hmm. earning competitive rates of return. So those are the two barbells I would want them to know about. Credit and debt on one hand, investments and rates of return and growth potential on the other hand. Sounds good. Would they have to know about the stock market then if they're going to invest with a bigger return in the stock market? Yes, they do. But whether or not you get into those conversations simply is a reflection of how much time you have in the classroom. So if I could only teach two subjects, I would just teach them the concepts. If you have additional time, yes, you can now delve into the investment question. What are the investment options that exist? What are the rates of return that these different options offer? Everything from money under a mattress to a (laughs) bank savings account to a bank certificate of deposit, to a government-issued bond, everything from savings bonds to T-bills to municipal bonds to real estate to annuities to the stock market. And by exposing them to these wide varieties of investment opportunities, they can begin to examine the risks and the rewards with each. Compounding is a, a concept easily taught. Yes, very easily mm-hmm. taught, and they, and they will love it. Uh, so you could uh, go to my book, The Truth About Money. Uh, mm. The first three parts of that book are really de- designed perfectly for high school kids. So I'm, it, it would do a huge good uh, to our young people and to everyone uh, to get financially smart. And so I'm very excited that you're doing this. How many kids are in your class? <laughs> 34. <laughs> 34 kids in a single class. That is not easy. So you know what I'm going to do, Dawn? 
I'm going to put you on hold. I'm gonna, okay. I'm going to get your address, and I'm going to ship you books for all the kids in your class. Thank you so much. So this way it will be a great um, uh, teaching tool for you to provide to them, and uh, they'll really enjoy my book, The Truth About Money, which was named Book of the Year by the Institute wow. for Financial Education to help you uh, support your efforts. Thank you very much. You're very welcome, Dawn. Thank you so much for everything you're doing for the kids in your classroom and the next generation of our society. Okay, great. Thanks. I'm Rick Edelman at Edelman Financial Engines. Call us at 888-PLAN-RICK. Visit us at rickedelman.com, and I will see you next week. And that's a wrap. As a reward, you'll have no radio for the rest of the week. Go to your room. See you next week.